If you are here today and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and I hope that you understand that the cross was for you. It was for all of us who have come to know Christ, but it was for you. He died so that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He rose so that you could be with him. And every promise is true in the Word of God. That he comes to offer abundant life. That he came to offer peace that passes all understanding. That he came to offer hope in a world that seems hopeless. And if you don't know him today, then we would love to have the opportunity to tell you how you can get to know him. Because we believe that God has called us to be people who fulfill the Great Commission. And I want to read you some familiar words. But they are words that are just as powerful, just as applicable as the day they were first spoken. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark 16 records it this way, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. You do not have to be a Greek scholar to understand what I've just read. We are to go. We are to make disciples. We are to teach. We are to reach people. You don't have to understand the Greek. You don't have to, to be brilliant to know that this is not optional. This is not just for a few. This is a command for all of us that we are to be great commission people and that God has called us to go with a message of hope to a lost world. It is our responsibility. It is not just a responsibility of the pastor or the staff or a few people with the gift of evangelism. It is our responsibility that as we go to reveal to others the life that has been changed in us by the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. Vance Havner used to say, it's the job of the preacher to fill the pulpit. It's the job of the people to fill the pews. That's right. You see, as you go, he didn't say, when you feel like it. As you go, make disciples. Amen. Tell people. Talk to people. Look for opportunities. And there are four common excuses we make for not fulfilling the Great Commission. When you want to summarize the excuses that people make for not being Great Commission people, it really falls into these four categories. Number one, it's not my gift. It's not my gift. I don't have the gift of evangelism. I'm an introverted person. I don't have an outgoing personality. God didn't say, if you're an extrovert, go and make disciples. He just said, go and make disciples. God didn't say, if it's your gift. He said, all of you. Go do this. Secondly, it's not my job. I'm not my brother's keeper. I got enough problems of my own to worry about anybody else's problems. It's not my job. Thirdly, I'm too busy. 
I'm too busy. I don't have enough time in the day. I don't have enough time to stop what I'm doing. If you saw my day planner, if you saw my Franklin Covey notebook, you would know I don't have time to do this. Jesus didn't say, if you have time. He said, go and make disciples. And fourthly, I don't care. I just don't care. It doesn't bother me that people will die without Christ. It doesn't concern me that people will die not hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not burdened about it. I'm not impacted by it. And in fact, 10,000 Southern Baptist churches last year didn't baptize anybody. 10,000 out of 41,000 said, we don't care. It's not our gift. It's not my job. We're too busy. Now, do you think those 10,000 churches are located in communities where there are people that don't know Christ? Well, four of you do. Do you think that those churches are located in communities where people don't know Christ? So why didn't they baptize anybody? They don't know. They don't care. They're too busy. It's not their gift. It's not their job. But it is the calling for all of us. It, it, it is not enough to say, well, we give to missions. Giving and going are not separate issues. We're to do both. We're to be involved in both. It's not just, well, we pay somebody on our staff to do that. Well, good. But you ought to do it yourself. There's nothing that brings more joy to the heart of a person than when you see somebody and the lights come on in them and they realize that God loves them although they're a sinner and they need Christ and they are going to die without Christ and spend eternity in hell. When that light comes on that God has made a way for them and the Holy Spirit convicts them of sin and they say, I want to know how to be saved. There's nothing like seeing that happen in somebody's life. It is an incredible moment that you can't get over. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 13, this is in your notes for the sake of time, Jesus said, Occupy till I come. And he told a parable of the pounds and the wealthy businessman who planned a trip, and he dispersed these pounds among three servants. Jesus is represented in the man who is the businessman. The disciples are represented in the servants, and the pound would represent his kingdom. And he gave them specific instructions. Occupy till I come. Now the word occupy doesn't mean, okay, I'm in my seat or you in yours. Occupy means to be busy about. When Jesus used the word occupy, he was saying, you be busy about what I've invested in you until I come. You do something about what I've given you until I come. And so the first servant increases his pound ten times, and he is rewarded. The second servant increases his five times, and he is rewarded. The third one was a Baptist. He played it safe. He hid his money. He hid his pound so that he would have it when the master returned. But when the master returned looking for a return on his investment... And he found that this third one had done nothing. He took what the third one had and gave it to the others. Now, it it is interesting to me, if you take time later, and the reason I put this in your notes, in Luke 19, if you take time to read it later, you will discover something in this parable. 
the ones that do the least sometimes talk the most. The first two, one multiplied by ten, one multiplied by five, responded to the master with one sentence. The third, who did nothing, had 40 words. Isn't it amazing how we try to justify what we don't do? And if you walk around a church very long, you will always find somebody who is very talkative about God, but in their talking about God, they're justifying what they're not doing for Him. Well, I don't feel like it. I don't have this, and I don't have that, and, and I can't do this, and I can't. And you, what you start realizing, they're not talking about God. They're talking about themselves and what they're not doing for God. Amen. And they're couching it under talking about God. But this third servant did nothing with what he was given. And sometimes those who do the least want to justify it the most. And so Jesus says, it's not acceptable. When he takes that that was given, that was hidden, and he gives it to these other servants, he says, it's not acceptable to be status quo. It's not acceptable to get what I've given you and to do nothing with it. I am going to come, you be busy about what I've told you to be busy about, and you occupy until I come. Apparently, when Jesus comes back, it's not just going to be the rapture, and we're not just going to sing the kink is coming. He's going to be looking for a return on his investment. He's going to be looking at your portfolio of your life to see what you have done with the gifts, the talents, the time, the abilities, the treasures that you've given him, and that he has invested in you. And so, Luke 19 and verse 10, Jesus says in this same chapter, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Six keys to going beyond ourselves. Number one, we have to be committed to reaching others. We have to be committed to reaching others. Now, folks, listen. The size of the town has nothing to do with the size of the church. Some people think small towns ought to have all small churches. I don't find anywhere in my Bible that it says that. Tyler, Texas is a town of 75,000 people. There's a church in Tyler, Texas, a Baptist church in Tyler, Texas, that averages 2,300 on Sunday morning with 75,000 people. There are more than 75,000 people in Albany, Georgia. You don't hear people in Tyler, Texas saying, that church is too big. They have to keep building and keep doing because people keep coming. First Baptist Church, Ada, when I was pastor there, we had 16,000 people in Ada, and we averaged 940 in Sunday school. Now, you could say, well, you shouldn't be in a church that big in a town that small. If you care about people, you will be. If you care about going beyond yourself, you will be. You won't say, like some of the people said there, well, there's, you know, this is a small town. We know everybody. Yeah, you do. So do you know where they go to church? Well, no. Well, then you don't know them. You, know, you may know their faces, but if you don't know where they're going to church and what their spiritual condition is, you don't know them. Our job is to get to know them and to find out where they are. Uh, our consultant for generations is a man named Glenn Sauls who pastored up in North Carolina. The community that he pastored in has 20,000 people in it. When he left three years ago, they were averaging 2,000 in his church out of 20,000 people in a community. So I would say to you, anybody that says it can't be done has not done a little honest surveying. 
It can be done. Big things can be done in small places. Great things can be done in unexpected places. There are 65,000 unchurched people within five miles of this church. There are people for us to reach and there are people for us to get to know. Secondly, if we're going to go beyond ourselves, we need dynamic leadership. Now, there's a great theologian named Will Rogers. He wasn't a theologian, but he had some smart things to say. Will Rogers said, the history of America will be written in three phases. The passing of the Indian, the passing of the buffalo, and the passing of the buck. <laughs> now, doesn't that describe America? We, it's not my fault, not my problem, not my responsibility. We always want to pass the buck. But listen, going beyond ourselves requires dynamic leadership. It means that no leader in this church can hide in the tall grass. It means that we have to stand up and speak out as leaders. And if you have influence in your family, if you're the spiritual leader in your family, then you need to be a dynamic one. You don't need to be a passive one. If you're the spiritual leader in your Sunday school class, you need to be a dynamic one. If you're a deacon, if you're an usher, if you're a greeter, if you're in a leadership position, you need to be a dynamic person. I'm not talking about being a Zig Ziglar personality. I'm talking about that you understand because God has spoken to your heart, this is bigger than any of us. And it will take all of us cooperating, doing what God wants us to do. Number three, another key to going beyond ourselves is breaking down misconceptions about a large church. Breaking down misconceptions about a large church. And this is one of them. They're so big, they'll never know who I am. Oh, yeah, we will. We'll find you. We'll know who you are. Now, everybody's not going to know who you are. But by the way, I know people in churches that have 85 in Sunday school that don't know the names of some of the other people in that church. They just know their faces. And you'll know a lot of faces and you'll know some names. You'll know about as many people and you'll have about as many intimate relationships in a large church as you do in a small church. The great thing about a large church is, is if you get mad one group, you can move to the other side of the church and get a whole new group. <laughs> you don't have to leave the church, you just move to another section. And then they look at you and say, oh, are you new? Yeah, I'm looking for some friends. <laughs> it's a brilliant plan. Now, why do churches get big? Because people feel comfortable in them. Because people are attracted to them. Because of the ministries that the churches provide. And so a church gets big because there's an environment. You see, we, we create an environment here. From the parking lot to the pew. Before you ever hear the choir, before you ever hear the sermon, you've already made an impression about who we are. And if, if we think we're friendly and we're not, you need to tell me. I need to know, because we're supposed to be friendly, because Christ has put something in our heart that makes us love people unconditionally, and if we're not doing that like we should be doing it, I'd like to know, or tell one of our staff members to let us know, because we need to know how to help make that happen, because our goal is, when you walk on this campus, that you feel welcomed and wanted, no matter who you are, what you look like, where you come from. We want you to feel welcomed and wanted. I love this quote by Vance Havner. Show me a church that is cold as an iceberg, and I'll show you a church that has a polar bear in a pulpit. 
Number four, mobilization of faith Sunday school. I can't believe John Spencer didn't say amen right there. Mobilization of faith Sunday school. Our Sunday school, our Bible study has a specific purpose, and that is to connect people to the church in small groups. And by the way, every Sunday school class is really a church within the church. And every Sunday school teacher is a pastor of that flock. And so when Faith Sunday School works, it works like a church works. There's in-reach emphasis. There's outreach emphasis. There's care ministry going on. And if Faith Sunday School is going to work, it can't be a few classes. It's got to be every class in this church engaging and involved in being mobilized to, to Faith Sunday School. Now, that's just simply a method and a plan, but it works. And it works because when you connect with people in a small group, they feel comfortable in the larger group. And Faith Sunday School has to work because that's where the Bible is taught by a layperson. That's where the spirit of fellowship of this church is caught by people. That's where we connect with people is in Bible study. And if you come to worship and you don't come to Bible study, let me encourage you, come by the welcome desk today and let us introduce you to somebody and give you a chance to try out a Sunday school class. But if you can't find one you like this week, we'll give you another one next week. We'll help you connect with people so you can get to know people. And Faith Sunday School is a key. And any class that's not committed to in-reach and outreach and care cannot continue to justify their existence. Now hear me well. If it's us four and no more, and we're not going to do in-reach, and we're not going to do outreach, and we're not going to care for people that are on our roles, entrusted to us, not by a Sunday school department, but by God putting them in our class, that class doesn't belong in the church. It needs to be a bridge club because that's all it is. When a Sunday school class is functioning, it is a ministering body. And people are engaging with one another and nobody slips out the cracks and nobody slips out the back door and we don't know about it. Nobody's in the hospital. Listen, when people go in the hospital and we don't know, it tells me one thing. Sunday school class is not caring for people in their class or we'd know about it. When the church doesn't know when people are having surgeries, it's, uh, listen, I do not sit in my office by osmosis going, now Lord, reveal to me today who might be in the hospital so that we can minister to them. That's why we connect. And that's why your class is important. Because it connects people with people. It connects staff with people. It connects ministry to people. And you and I need to help one another in mobilizing Faith Sunday School to be what it's supposed to be. I believe that we need to move to dual Sunday schools in the next 18 months. And I'm talking about complete duels, not just what we're doing now. And for us to do that, several things have got to happen. First of all, we've got to double our workforce with preschool and children and youth. We can spread out some adult classes, but we've got to double our workforce to offer options for people in Sunday school. Right now, we don't have any preschool or child care in our 815 Bible study. We need to get to the point where we can do that with every age group efficiently and effectively. We've got to find some space 
for more people. Because if we reach the people through generations that we should reach, we're going to have more people. And we're going to quickly run out of Bible study room. So we're going to have to be flexible. If we're going to be great commission-oriented, we're going to have to be flexible. We've got to build space, buy space, or find space. But we're going to have to make some room for those who are going to come. Because Albany is over 50% single adult, we need to do more in that area than we've ever done before. Listen, folks, when we talk about families at Sherwood Baptist Church, here's what we're talking about. And help me get this word out. A family is one or more. My daughter is a single adult in Orlando, Florida. She is a family of one in an apartment. And she is as important as a family of one as is a family of ten. Because she's a person. And you don't say, well, we just reach families with children. We want to reach families of one or more. Not just the ones we choose, but all that come along our path. We've got to get every Sunday school class committed to faith. Number five. It will take a whatever-it-takes mentality. Baskin-Robbins has 31 flavors. They have a flavor of the month. Then they change it. Krispy Kreme has lots of flavors of donuts. I know some of you think they only got one. But actually, they have several. Dunkin' Donuts has a lot of different flavors of donuts. Why? They offer variety for people. And some churches, they don't want to do whatever it takes, so they just want to do Sunday morning, maybe Sunday night, and a little bit Wednesday night, and that's it. We have designed this church to be multifaceted with multiple ministries because we know not, you know, 28% of Americans cannot worship on Sunday morning. You realize that? 28% of America couldn't come to church on Sunday morning if they wanted to. They have to work every Sunday morning. That's just life. So what does the church say if it's only open for worship on Sunday morning? It says for 28% of Americans, we don't care about your spiritual condition. You don't matter to us. You realize that there are 700 models of cars to choose from in America. I've driven 534 of them. (laughs) And the new convertible Mustang is coming out. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. (laughs) Ah, well. Used to, when Johnny Carson was king of late-night television, you watched ABC, NBC, or CBS. Now you've got 130 channels on basic cable. You can watch programming for women, programming for men, sports channels, news channels, trading spaces channels. That one's on at my house a lot. <laughs> Reality TV, drama, comedy. I mean, you've got a gamut of choices. And the church cannot minister to a culture that is filled with choices with a 1950s mentality. We have to get out of that box and think it's going to take more than just having Sunday school and church and prayer meeting if we're going to reach a culture that is exploring all their options. And trying to find out where they're going to land. So why do we have a sports park? 
Because right now, today, sports is the number one way that churches have found that they're reaching people for Christ. Whether it's adults or singles or young people or children, it's the number one way that people are being reached. I got an email from a lady in Oklahoma. She lives in Oklahoma City. She was one of my young people when I was a, a youth minister in Oklahoma. And she sent me an email. Notice that you're starting a, a campaign and that you're building a sports park. We just built an entirely new recreation facility, and we thought it would last us. We've been in it three months, and we have outgrown it, and we don't know what to do. Why? Somebody out there was waiting for somebody to provide a ministry for them, and they started coming. Now, it's not just sports. That's why we do the dray line. That's why we feed the men on, on the dray line every Thursday. We don't get anything out of that except the blessing of doing it. That's why we do the home connection. And we go into homes of people who are shut in and homebound and on hospice. And we give them a Bible study class. So you know what we found in home connection? There are people that have been homebound for two and three years that their churches have never contacted them at all. And they become part of our church family through television because they can't physically come anymore. We do it through hospice. We were the first church to get involved in hospice ministry here in Albany, Georgia. Why? It was the right thing to do. We want to do it through age group ministries. We did it by upgrading the rock and upgrading our weights and our facility. That facility is being used more right now than it's been used in years. We want to build a new youth center or buy one. We want to build a new recreation center that is twice the size of the one we have on these grounds. Why? Because we want to say to a lost community, we're going to love you in so many ways, you're going to find one you like. Now get that in your head. We're going to love you in so many ways, you're going to find a way you like. And that's where we're going to connect with them. Because we're going to go to them on where they think they have a need so that we can show them what their real need is. That way we're fulfilling the Great Commission and living out the Great Commandment. And I want you to write this down somewhere in your notes. This is a great, great thought. In Loveland, Colorado, there's a motel that has a sign over the desk. Now, this is not a mission statement, but it is a good one. This is bad English and good theology, okay? This is the sign over the desk of this hotel. There ain't hardly no business here that ain't been went after. There ain't hardly no business here that ain't been went after. In other words, not many people just drop into Loveland, Colorado to check into a motel. You got to advertise, you got to promote, you got to tell them that you're here. And that's bad English, but it is great theology. Folks, there are not many of you that are here that we didn't go after. You're here because somebody connected with you, because somebody loved you, because somebody shared the gospel with you, because someone invited you when you were new to this community. You're here because somebody went after you. And they didn't go after you to make a number, they went after you because they cared about you as a person. And we've invested the way we have because we care about people. Now, we should never be satisfied until I'm on one through five. All right, you ready? Number one, we are adding to the church daily those who are being saved. 
We should not be satisfied until we are adding to the church daily those who are being saved. By the way, that is New Testament. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're adding to the church daily those that are being saved. That means that we should never be satisfied until we baptize 365 people a year minimum. Because it didn't just say they added one. That means that we cannot be satisfied with leading our association for almost 30 years in a row in baptisms. That's not enough. Because there are more lost people in Albany today than there were 30 years ago. So we need to add to the church daily those who are being saved. Secondly, we see changed lives and an increased hunger for God in this membership. What that means for me is revival from the pulpit to the parking lot. There's a hunger for God. There are changed lives. Number three, that every Sunday school class is operating according to plan. Number four, that we see lost people walking the aisles of this church every week. And when they don't, we're burdened about it. And number five, we've obeyed the command to occupy until he comes. We've obeyed the command to occupy until he comes. Now let's talk about four observations about being a Great Commission church. Number one, the command was given to common people. You look at this group of, of disciples. They are not the people I would have picked. Well, I might have. I wouldn't have picked a tax collector or a Pharisee or a zealot. might have picked a fisherman because at least I know we'd eat. If it's some of the fishermen in this church, they would talk about bigger fish than they catch. But that's a different story. In Matthew 28, 17, some were doubtful. In Mark 16, 14, Jesus rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, they still didn't get it. They said, Lord, is it now? Is it time? These were common people. But everything changed at Pentecost. Why did it change? Because of a promise given in Matthew. They needed the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit came, this is what they got. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. What these disciples, what these ragmuffins needed was authority. And they got their authority not because of titles or positions. They got their authority through the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God and the command of God. They needed His authority. Secondly, the command came with a game plan. The command came with a game plan. Go. You shall be my witnesses. Make disciples. Baptizing. Teaching. All action verbs. No couch potatoes. Passion. Go do these things. Have passion. These are, are action verbs. Now, now, in your notes, you'll see that Tom Rayner in his book, The Unchurched Next Door has done a survey, and he's given us five stages that are levels of responsiveness. This is from an extensive survey done of Americans about their gospel and their response to it. Now, for these closing minutes, I want you to listen very carefully because I want you to see how open this world is to the gospel. While we think they're closed to the gospel, in fact, 
they are very open to the gospel. The you stands for the unchurched. And in these five stages, by the way, this is the third observation. In, in these five stages, there are five levels of responsiveness. You one is they are highly receptive. Now, you need to write this down. You need to talk about this in your Sunday school class. You need to pray about this. They are highly receptive to hearing and believing the good news. That's 11% of people surveyed are highly receptive to hearing and believing the good news. This is not a survey of church people. This is a survey of unchurched people. You too is they are receptive to the gospel and the church, 27%. That's 38% of people in America are either highly receptive or receptive. Some to hearing and believing, but to the gospel and the church. In other words, they don't have a negative vibe about the church. They, they still feel okay about it. They're receptive to it. They're receptive to an invitation. Number three, you three, they're neutral. There are no clear signs of being interested, but they will not cut you off in a discussion. They are open to discussion, 36%. Now you're at an overwhelming majority are either highly receptive receptive, or they won't cut you off when you start talking to them about the gospel. 36% will listen to you. And by the way, that percent is rising as we become a postmodern culture with no absolutes because everybody's, hey, if you've got a truth, let me hear it. This culture is easier to witness to now than it was 20 years ago because they don't know any absolute truth. Nobody says anything, this is what God says. It's whatever you think or whatever you feel or whatever you've experienced. And so 36% are receptive. You four, they are resistant to the gospel, but non-antagonistic. They are resistant to the gospel, but they're not antagonistic. Now that's 21%. Now we're way, way, way over the top. I mean, anybody that, that hadn't figured out by this point that 85% almost of people are ready to say, hey, I, I'll listen to you. And then you five, they are highly antagonistic and hostile to the gospel. 5%. 5%. Let me give you a quick story. I'll give you two quick ones. One of the guys that my daughter works with at Disney watched Flywheel this past week, and he cried. And when she asked him about the movie, he, he said, that's me. That's my life. I've made such a mess of my life and a wreck of my life. He, he said, I can't go to church because I'm too ashamed of who I am. And so she had a chance to talk and share with him. We got a phone call this week from a guy in Pensacola, Florida, who owns a car dealership. He went to the movie store. He really likes movies. And so he went to the movie store. He's going to rent Friday Night Lights. And he couldn't find it, so he saw Flywheel on the Blockbuster rack. By the way, we're now in 4,600 Blockbusters around the country. So he found Blockbuster, and he found Flywheel, and he picked it up and looked at it. He said, I don't know anybody in this movie, and he set it back down. 
He, he went back, and he couldn't find anything else he wanted to watch, so he went and got flywheel, and he picked it up and took it home and watched it. Watched the movie, he said, that's my life. He took it to work the next day. He had a guy working with him that just, he said, I, you know, I've almost fired this guy about three times. He, he, just, he just does dumb things all the time. And so, uh, do you remember the guy's name? I don't remember the guy's name. Where's Alex when I need him? So anyway, so, so he, he hands it to this guy that he said has just, just always been a problem on his car lot. And he, and he says, hey, I want you to take this home and I want you to watch this movie. And so the guy takes Flywheel home. Now, he has nothing to do with the church. He knows nothing about God. And he takes Flywheel home and he watches it. He and his wife. They're, that's Friday night. They're open on Saturday until 1. He stays awake all Friday night because he's wrestling with what he's seen in this movie. He gets up and he takes a shower the next morning. And in his shower, he starts sobbing. And he cries so hard, he wakes his wife up. And he goes in. She goes in. And there he is in the shower. In the shower on his knees and on his face, sobbing and crying out that his life is a wreck. Amen. And the only thing he knows to pray is the prayer that Jay Austin prays in his living room, says, Lord, I've made a mess of my life. I give you my life. And he gets saved in the shower. Amen. Now... He goes to work. He takes the movie with him. He goes and sees his boss. And he says, I watched this movie. It tells him he got saved. It is pouring down raining. You don't sell cars on a rainy day. This guy has barely sold a car in a day. He's terrible. He sold three cars before noon. And he said, I guess God's going to bless me. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> now, was he receptive to the gospel? Yes, and he didn't even know it. He didn't even know he was receptive to the gospel. But he saw something, and God pricked his heart, and the Holy Spirit had convicted him of sin, and he couldn't sleep that night, and he got up and he took a shower, and he couldn't even get out of the shower to get dried off and put on clothes to say, God, I need you. Amen. That's the power of the gospel. Now, there are ten surprises from the unchurched, and I'm going to go through these quickly. These are some other things you need to discuss in your Bible study class. Number one, most would prefer to attend church on Sunday morning if they attend. You see, we make the excuse, oh, nobody wants to get up and go to church on Sunday morning. It's their day off. Most unchurched people would prefer to come on Sunday morning if they were going to attend. Secondly, females are likely to either be the most antagonistic or the most receptive to the gospel. See, we think good old boys are the most antagonistic to the gospel. Surveys, survey says, uh, surveys say that females will either, they will be at the extremes more than men of antagonism or receptivity to the gospel. Number three, most 
feel guilty for not attending church. Most feel guilty for not attending church. And by the way, our job is to not make them feel guilty for not attending church. Our job is to love them into wanting to come. Number four, 82% are at least somewhat likely to attend church if invited. 82% are at least somewhat likely to attend church if invited. Now, here's a fact that is frightening to me. In this same survey of these 10 surprises of the unchurched, you need to write this down in the margin somewhere because this needs to rattle our cage. Only 21%, only 21% of Christians in America ever invite anybody to come to church. Only 21% ever invite anybody. That means for anything. That means for children's choirs. That means for a concert. That means for a wild game dinner. That means anything. And of that, only 2% ever invite lost people. Only 2% of church members in America today ever even invite a lost person to come to church. Which begs the question, how can we say we believe the Great Commission? Especially when only 21% are doing it, but 82% say there's someone likely to attend if invited. What that tells me is that there are more people ready to come than than there are people who are willing to invite. There are people ready to come. Number five, very few of the unchurched have had anyone share with them the gospel. That's logical. If we're not inviting them, we're certainly not sharing with them. Very few of the unchurched have had anyone share with them the gospel. Number six, most of the unchurched have a positive view of pastors and churches. Now let me give you the reasons. These are surprising. The reasons most unchurched people don't come to church. Number one, unfriendliness. Number two, this is not up on the screen. Number two, unkept facilities and grounds. You see, what you do with a building says what you believe about your God. This is not God's house. We just gather here to worship. But how we keep this facility says what we think about our God. If we're sloppy, if we're dirty, if we're cluttered, it says we don't have a high view of God. Unkept facilities. Number three, poor signage. Poor signage. I don't know where to go. When I get there, I don't know how to get in and out of the building. That's why we've got signs on buildings. That's why when Garrett invites somebody to come on Wednesday night, he can say, you come to the Hope Building. It's on the outside of the building. It's real easy to see. You come to the Fellowship Building. You come to the Joy Building. Why? Why have we spent money on signs? We want people to know how to get from A to B. You know how to get there, but a newcomer doesn't. We had somebody here Wednesday night that dropped off their child on Wednesday night. I was standing out in, in the little area out there and said, now, how do I get back out? Now, for me, that's real easy. But for somebody that's new, that's a little difficult. We don't need to assume that everybody knows where everything is. I remember when I first came here, we said, oh, they meet in the pit. 
well, what's the pit? Well, it's that room down there that's low. Oh, good. Tells me nothing. But the number one reason above all of those is nobody invited me. Number seven, some types of cold calls are effective, many are not. We live in a society where people do not like uninvited visits. And so we have to go where they are and bring them to places that make them comfortable. Number eight, they would like to develop a relationship with a Christian. They would like to develop a relationship with a Christian. Those who want the next generation the most will get them. And if they'll develop relationships with us and we can develop relationships with them, we will get the next generation. But if we don't build relationships and let them know we want to build relationships so they can ask questions things that they don't know about, things that they don't understand, which, by the way, makes us dig deeper in our faith. Because when you can't answer a question, you don't just shrug your shoulders and say, I don't know, but I'll find somebody who does. Because we want to answer the questions they're asking. They're not asking any new questions. They're just phrased differently. Number nine, the attitudes of the unchurched are not correlated to where they live, their ethnic or racial background, or their gender. The lines that we tend to draw socially are not drawn by the unchurched when it comes to church. They don't have the baggage that some people do. They live in an integrated world and an integrated society that has to embrace all kinds of people and so that's not a big deal for them. You know, it's a bigger deal for some church people that a church reaches across all lines than it is for the people we're trying to reach. Number 10, this I think is the most important. And if you want to know why generations, this is it. Number 10, many are far more concerned about the spiritual well-being of their children than of themselves. They are more concerned about the spiritual well-being of their children than they are themselves. They may say initially, I'm not really interested in church. I'm not really interested in things of God. I'm not really interested in talking about that. But I'm worried about my kids. Drugs and alcohol and, and sexuality and violence and gangs and cults and everything else. I'm concerned about where my kids are and what's going on with my kids. And so because of that, you mean you're going to provide a place where my kids can come in a safe environment and play and enjoy one another and make friends? Yes, we are. Great. That sounds like the kind of place that I want to put my kids in. That sounds like what I want to do for my children. And so they're more concerned about the spiritual condition of their kids than they are themselves. Now let me tell you why we're here, folks. We're here today to see our opportunity. We're here today to accept our responsibility. We're here to position ourselves for our greatest years of ministry ever. And we are here to invest in the next generation. If we don't, one day, this church will be dead. 
and all the time that you've spent teaching and sharing and loving and investing and giving and building relationships will be lost as far as eternity is concerned. Our job is to leave a better church than the one we found. And we found a good one. But our job is to invest in a kingdom business and in a kingdom culture that says we're going to do something for the next generation. And that next generation begins now. It begins today. And whoever wants them the most will get them. I am not going to sit back, nor should anyone in this church sit back and let people die in this community without knowing that Sherwood Baptist Church loves God with all its heart, soul, mind, and strength and loves its neighbor as itself. And no one should die in this community without knowing that whosoever will may come. And no one in this community should die because only 21% of us did our job of fulfilling the Great Commission. It is all of our responsibility all of our responsibility nobody gets to check out of the box on this one we all have it to do and so my question for you today is if if you're lost what's keeping you from understanding that Jesus Christ changes lives if you're saved I ask you the question today what is keeping you from sharing the good news the fact that Jesus changed you if it was good enough to change you it ought to be good enough to talk about Everybody tomorrow is going to be talking about who won the Super Bowl. I don't care. Somebody in this church needs to be talking about tomorrow. You know, Super Bowl is not going to last, but I want to tell you something. Jesus did something in me that's going to last for billions of years. He's changed my life. He set me on a course to heaven. When I die, I'm going to live with him eternally. That was better than any game I've ever seen. That night when he changed my life. Share the story that I shared today about the guy in Pensacola. It's not hard, folks. You don't have to memorize a plan. The greatest witness you have is a changed life. And a changed life produces changed lips. And a changed mind.